The probability that we will be able to escape recession, I still believe, is vanishingly small. If we saw a new source of liquidity come into the market, then I think we would have to get a bit more optimistic. We've been in a world where there haven't been many decisions that you've had to take as a politician. It's going to get tougher. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. It's Alison Savas. Absolute Strategy Research is one of only a handful of highly regarded, independent global macro research firms, with a team of analysts globally who have been providing valuable insights to institutional investors and other big corporations for the last 15 years. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ian Harnett, the co-founder and chief investment strategist of Absolute Strategy Research, who has over 25 years experience in economics and equity strategy. Over the next 30 minutes, Ian and I cover a range of topics, from the economic outlook in the West, China's longer-term growth profile, geopolitics, and where the big risks could emerge, and the opportunities. Spoiler alert, Ian doesn't think the West can sidestep recession, on account of the largest, fastest, and broadest tightening of monetary policy since 1980. In his words, the credit crunch hasn't started yet. Given Ian's role at ASR is asset allocation, he's thinking about the big picture, starting with bonds versus equities. Ian is constructive on bonds. He believes US equities, and by extension global equities, since the US accounts for 65% of the global index, are broadly overvalued. Now what could change this view? More liquidity, which is most likely to come from China. At Antipodes, we share many of Ian's views. For example, Ian sees relative value and better growth prospects in AsiaX Japan, along with opportunities in defensive equities like consumer staples and healthcare. But we don't share them all. Ian thinks Europe has moved too far on expectations around China's reopening, while our view is that European multinationals can do well when external demand is strong, and that could be from the US or Asia. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ian Harnett, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Good to see you. Can we start with the highly anticipated US recession? I think you told the Australian press a few months ago that it would be a miracle if the US avoided a recession. And, you know, we've really got this two-speed economy, don't we? And it's not just in the US, but it is globally, where we've got this strength in services that's offsetting a weakness in manufacturing. Can the West sidestep recession? So, Alison, I'm going to stick with my uh, prognostication. Um, I still very much believe that we are still looking at a world that is going into recession. Um, You know, over the next 12 months, the probability that we will be able to escape recession, I still believe, is vanishingly small, whether that's in the US or in the bulk of the Anglo-Saxon economies. You know, the bottom line is that that monetary policy has been tightened over the last 18 months in terms of interest rates. But we are also, um, you know, seeing the quantitative tightening coming through as central banks limit the access to credit. Um, As for that two-speed economy, we always get a two-speed economy before recessions. Mm. Um, You know, nearly Mm. always we have this discussion um, that, you know, the manufacturing sector is slowing, the service sector is doing fine, isn't it? But remember that every single recession is driven by investment, inventory Mm. and trade. It's about the traded goods side, it's about the manufacturing goods side. And then 
miraculously, we see those service numbers start to turn down. So it has been an unusually large gap this mm. cycle, but you know, it's not a new phenomenon from that perspective. So, you know, my perception is that, you know, we are still looking at a recession because quite honestly, the credit crunch hadn't yet started. And the lags in our mm. models are pointing to the fact that that's really just about to kick in in a number of economies. Mm. So on that continuum of outcomes where you have a soft landing at one end of the spectrum and then a hard landing at the other, is it fair to say you think you're, that you think we're heading towards that hard landing? So our, our central case is that it is um, a drawn out recession, that it's mm. a softer but drawn out. You know, I think if you had to um, look at the risk bands around that between no landing and hard landing, mm. personally, I would very definitely be aiming for that harder side rather than softer side. As I say, partly because, you know, we believe that, you know, this is the, the largest, fastest, broadest tightening of monetary policy that you've had since 1980. Um, even old guys like me, um, you know, weren't in the markets then. Um, you know, so I think that there is still scope for, um, you know, a lot of investors and a lot of policymakers mm. to be surprised by, um, you know, the, 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 the lags, but also the, um, the scale that we could see um, that uh, hard landing take uh, uh, over the next few months. Mm. It, it'd be really interesting to hear the two or three key data points that you're tracking closely as you continue to test your views. And what, what would you need to see to reassess your base case? So the thing that, that we, you know, that Absolute Strategy Research find as being absolutely critical for investment is the outlook for employment. Mm. Um, you know, the thing that hasn't come our way in terms of that slowdown, um, if you'd have told me a year ago that we'd still be record, looking at, you know, record low unemployment rates, mm. we would have been more positive in our views. Mm. So for us, you know, we have to see those initial claims continuing to rise the unemployment rate starting to pick up. And, you know, we're talking about US unemployment getting up to around about 5.5% over the next 12 months. You know, to do that, you know, you can need to see, as I say, investment remain weak around the world. Um, and we're still looking for the trade numbers uh, to remain weak around the world. Mm. What would make me reassess things? Mm. You know, so, um, you know, I think the, the, the key thing there is, remember I said that I think this is a liquidity event. Mm. So, as I say, last year was about the cost of capital. This year will be about the quantity of capital. So if we were to see a big injection of liquidity, and I think that's what's um, actually saved these markets um, in the first half of the year. We had a big injection of liquidity from the BOJ around the beginning of the year, about 900 billion as they tried to keep yield curve control in place. Then we had the PBOC inject around about 600 billion um, uh, for, uh, uh, around the turn of the year. Um, we had SVB lead to the bank term funding program that added liquidity, and then the debt crisis in America, well, as the Treasury ran down their general account, that actually injected liquidity in the markets. Mm. So we've had a series of things that have held these markets up, liquidity-driven markets. Um, those are now stopping. 
But if we saw a new source of liquidity come into the market, and that is probably you know a big dose of Chinese liquidity mm. is the most likely source of that, then I think we would have to get a bit more um, you know optimistic about the outlook for the markets, even if not necessarily for the real economy in the short term. But typically, when you get a big liquidity injection, um, particularly from somewhere like China, it tends to ease pressure in the global currency markets, global liquidity markets, financial conditions ease, and economic conditions tend to um, you know, stabilize or improve as well. So you know, that for me, that's the thing that I am most concerned about. Um, I, I'm, I, I suspect it will be less that um, you know, some people are talking about inflation coming mm. down, helping to boost real incomes, mm. and that is going to keep s- sales numbers relatively strong you know we don't think that that is quite as likely in uh, 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 the, uh, the the world at the current time now Ian, there's three topics you've raised which i'd like to explore further that's the labor market liquidity and investment now starting with the labor market uh, yep. you know it still looks really tight the numbers show there's still around 1.8 jobs for every unemployed person which is keeping that upward pressure on yep. wages Can you see a scenario where the Fed can tighten the economy just enough to restore balance in the labour market and take that pressure out of wages without seeing a meaningful rise in unemployment and therefore keep the economy relatively intact? You know, I don't think we do. And even if you look at the Fed uh, press statements, um, not the minutes, it's not in the minutes, any, um, not in the um, uh, initial statement from the Fed any longer, but it's in, still there in the statement at the start of um, Jay Powell's press comments. They are still talking about the need to introduce excess capacity into the economy. The bottom line is if you look at um, you know, the changes to core inflation over the decades, it's nearly always come with a change in unit wage costs. Those unit wage costs you know, either need two things to happen, wage growth to come down miraculously um, or productivity to go up. And normally the easiest way of getting productivity up is to produce the same amount of goods and services with fewer people. Um, and, you know, uh, so, you know, and even that the, the recently very highly uh, commented on paper by, um, you know, Ben Bernanke and Olivier Blanchard um, uh, highlight the need to equilibrate the, the, you know, the, job, the jobs gap, which, again, is another way of saying that unemployment has to go up. So, you know, this immaculate disinflation um, seems an unlikely um, source of inflation coming down. You know, it will be a very unusual world in which core inflation came down without unemployment going mm. up, Alison. And on the liquidity side, I, I did want to ask about credit. So, you know, tighter lending standards has seen private credit grow slow. Um, and that is typically a leading indicator for the economy. Yeah. But on the other hand, non-bank financial institutions are becoming a more important participant in financial markets. So can these NBFIs, these non-bank financial institutions, keep the credit wheels turning as, you know, banks come under more pressure from tighter credit standards and a more cautious approach to lending? So one thing to recognise is that probably banks are more responsive to um, interest rates. 
Um, and, you know, uh, so th there's been some squeeze coming through from that side. The second element is that SVB mm. and the, you know, the failure of the banks that we saw at the, um, you know, back in March, um, I think is, has just led uh, lending officers to keep their lending standards tight, mm. keep uh, credit spreads higher. The problem for the economy is that those kind of lending standards lead credit growth by about 12 months for both households and for corporates. So for us, the big impact and the big reason why we're still worried about credit is that um, SVB didn't make the recession more likely or sooner or deeper. But because it's going to keep lending officers more cautious mm. for longer, it probably means that the downward pressure on credit isn't going to reverse until the middle of next year. Mm. So, you know, again, this is why I don't think that we can say that we're out of the woods from the recession pressure. As for non-bank financials, we believe, and there's actually some work by Isabel Schnabel at the ECB, mm. sorry to be a bit technical and boring there, <laughs> um, uh, that uh, just highlights that these non-bank financials potentially are impacted by the quantity of credit available. And if you think about the failure of SVB and you think about the venture capital companies mm. that kept on tapping their credit line thinking it was going to be there, mm. well, guess what? You know, actually, because the Fed wasn't refilling the coffers of SVB every week um, with, their, their, with their bonds, uh, that is why one of the reasons we think that SVB failed and why those venture capital companies had to go cap in hand to say, please bail us out, please bail us out. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the quantity of credit, mm -hmm. I think, will impact those non-bank financials. And it's something that the central banks and the supranational agencies have become very concerned about, Alison. Um, you know, we recently uh, put out a paper just highlighting that, you know, these non-bank financials now control about $240 trillion of assets, but the banks control 183. Oof. So they, the non-bank financials, so asset managers, pension funds, insurance companies, hedge funds, private equity, private credit, these are now the dominant actors in the market. But the point we've been making to clients is that, you know, even private credit, private equity, those companies can't avoid a cash flow crisis. Mm. So if economic growth slows, nominal sales growth comes down, and you've got the wrong cost structure, you are still going to be in trouble. Um, now, the mechanism for that feeding into financial markets and for US equities uh, is that if you, uh, if you get a call on your dry powder as an asset owner, how do you make good on that? Mm. It's actually a margin call for you. You have to call your asset manager, say, I want $100 million today. They sell what they can in the liquid markets. So this is part of the transmission mechanism between the private, uh, the non-bank um, uh, financials and the private uh, credit and equity markets into the publicly listed markets. Mm -mm. Gosh, the size, their stats around the size of NBFIs. I mean, that, that's really quite <laughs> remarkable. It's, it's pretty scary, it isn't is it? It is pretty scary. And, rem and remember that, you know, the most up-to-date data that the central banks have is 2021. Mm. And they only monitor actively 70 trillion of that 240 trillion total. Mm. Um, and some areas, you know, 
we know that private credit, private equity is quite opaque. Mm. Uh, but some areas like fintech, there's no regulation. Mm. There's no data. It is the Wild West. Mm, mm, mm. So um, buyer beware, I think, is the expression there. Yeah. And and are you surprised that non-residential fixed investment has remained relatively resilient even as manufacturing has collapsed? Are there any structural forces at play here or do you think that this non-resi construction ultimately catches down to manufacturing? Um, you know, I think that uh, we see those pressures. You know, there's certain, <coughs> excuse me, um, in some economies such as the US with the IRA, Australia mm. with its love of infrastructure uh, and the need for, you know, a lot of, of, of um, uh, uh, environmental transition infrastructure. Yes. You know, those w- that will be a structural story around the world. But at some point you have to pay for it. Yes. And, you know, what we're looking at is fiscal deficits around the world yes. that are, you know, very high. Um, uh, and um, the capacity, the fiscal capacity to carry on playing, paying for this in a world of higher interest rates becomes more difficult. So I think, you know, we've been in a world where there haven't been many decisions that you've had to take as a politician. It's going to get tougher. Um, and so, yes, our expectation is that, you know, overall investment is actually decelerating quite sharply in the United States as a percent of GDP, you know, to recessionary levels. So, you know, I, I, I again, I'm, I'm still pretty comfortable with, uh, with that investment mm. type story mm. slowing. And yeah, hopes that we'll be bailed out by transition investment, I think, is perhaps premature. Mm-mm. And, you know, you mentioned fiscal capacity, which is exactly what I, what I wanted to ask in this next question. You know, um, policymakers in the US and, 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 you know, broadly in the West don't have that same flexibility as prior downside, as they had in prior down cycles because fiscal and monetary bullets were spent during that economic expansion. So what do you think happens to the fiscal deficit in a recession or, you know, a hard landing scenario? And, and what are the longer term implications of a high and in all likelihood growing fiscal deficit? So, you know, this is actually the first time that we have seen debt deleveraging um, over the last couple of years as, um, you know, debt to GDP ratios have come down Mm. across uh, the Western economies. Um, You know, in the US, as I say, it's the first time since 1952 Mm. that debt to GDP has come down. And it hasn't just been that the uh, nominal growth has been the, the key driver there. There has actually been some deleveraging. But, you know, the capacity to expand these debt levels going back 100 years, you've never seen anything quite this high. We've all, uh, you know, don't underestimate mm. the level of debt as well, Alison, in the mm. emerging economies. Mm. You know, one of the consequences of zero rates for a decade um, is that, you know, those emerging economies took on a lot of debt, both government debt and also private sector debt um, as well. Um, again, another thing that the IMF are concerned about. Um some economies like the US, you know, President Giscard d'Estaing of, uh, of France many years ago talked about America's exorbitant privilege mm. as being the world's reserve currency. If you um, are at the world's reserve currency or you, your debt is largely owned domestically, as we had in Japan, you know, there's probably not much limit. But what we've seen is a willingness of policymakers just to bail out absolutely everything and anyone. 
at some point you do have to pay for that and we are seeing that today bond yields over the next five to ten years almost certainly will be higher to pay for some of those excesses so there will be a cost um, but sadly um, it will be your generation um, <laughs> not my generation uh, that probably pay that um, and and with the proportion of working age population dropping as well tax rates will have to go up so higher interest rates higher tax rates um, you know not necessarily a great combination for um, you know longer term growth prospects so with all that in mind what is your view of US equities overvalued or undervalued well let's put it to global equities which is very definitely overvalued um, and U.S. equities being 50% of that, you know, if, uh, of those global equities, you know, they, they are definitely overvalued as well. Um, you know, whether you're looking at traditional metrics like price earnings multiples, even on a forward looking basis, they're on over 18 times. Their historic average over the last 20 years, about 16 times. Um, look at something more fundamental like the Schiller PE, so a cyclically adjusted, so taking into account how strong earnings have been over the last 10 years. Um, that you know, is on 30 times the 10-year uh, the, the, the average earnings uh, for the US. You know, this has been only exceeded at the peak in the, um, the, the, the late 90s, early 2000 tech bubble and 1929. How do you view the other major economic blocks, namely Europe and China? Do you see better relative value there? They may be cheaper, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're particularly attractive value. Mm-hmm. Um, and so particularly for the Eurozone, I think we would feel more comfortable with China um, or at least the Asia ex-Japan markets, um, you know, where there is better value and we can see economic growth coming through. I think China, the risk there is that people got a bit overexcited about the recovery. But that's also true about Europe. So in the past, Europe has been a key beneficiary of Chinese recovery. And, you know, that, uh, that you know, got ahead of itself. And so, you know, we now think that Europe is now exposed to economic slowdown. So, you know, unless we get a big Chinese um, re recovery uh, and revaluation. I think European equities have probably gone too far too quickly. And let's stick with China, but I'd like to look beyond the short term. There has been discussion around China's growth story coming to an end. The country is facing structural headwinds to growth. For example, a structurally smaller property sector, a more disciplined approach to fiscal spending, rising levels of debt, ageing population, and a more challenging geopolitical backdrop. How are you thinking about China's longer-term growth profile? So I think you have to recognise that China is moving towards a, uh, a more um, normal uh, economic growth profile. Um, you know, our expectation is that we will hit 5% this year and next, mm. um, and that will probably slow towards 4%. But if you think that the average, um, you know, major Western economy is probably going to grow at two, two and a half percent, you know, if we're lucky, Mm. the share of Chinese economic activity in the global economy is probably going to carry on rising for at least the next decade. Um, And I think that's one of the things that people tend to forget. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, you know, the the profile will slow. It'll become more of a normal economy. Mm. 
Um, they, you know, the Chinese authorities are taking a very responsible view to their debt problems and trying to avoid a, a major debt deleveraging process. Um, but and that will again constrain their their economic growth. But you know, don't don't write it off completely. I think would be the uh, the, the message. Um, the one thing that I would say is that this battle between you know the new Cold War between you know East and West, mm. um, uh, and you know China uh, being constrained physically in how quickly it can expand its um, you know semiconductor. Um, uh, businesses because of the U.S. Chip Act. You know that's actually potentially one of the things that limits Chinese focus on export uh, growth, export-driven growth. Um, if you think about the number of, of semiconductors that are required in every car or every fridge, etc., you know, the, the, so China will need to re-engineer it. It's its trade mm. and its economy. It's not just the West that is going to be reshoring here mm. in this new Cold War. Um, and, you know, the pandemic showed us that you can't do that instantly. If you try to do that, there will be a global recession of a major kind. But, you know, um, over time, it does appear that this fracturing of the global economy into these new geopolitical blocks of, you know, friends of China, friends of America, um, it, it's very definitely a theme that investors should be thinking about. Mm. And the unknown in that is is where Europe ends up. You know, and uh, either it becomes the, uh, the, 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 the hub through which the rest of the world trades, i.e. China and America both are friends with Europe, mm. um, or it just becomes a very old place where people go to holiday um, and has no real... Uh, independent uh, engine of growth, which would be a, a sad outcome. But yeah, um, you know, in, interesting developments there. Mm. So just to expand on that, that fracturing of the global economy, as, as you touched on, you know, the global economy is more integrated than ever. And, and China contributes 15% of global trade. Can the West really decouple from, from China? Um, I think it's very difficult to decouple. Um, but it can decouple if it accepts that there will be a change in its growth profile, uh, its consumption habits, and um, and a change in the inflation profile as well. So the mm. main limit, I think, Alison, is about you know the fact that we've had access to cheap, globally produced or global, globally sourced um, uh, output and labor over the last 20 years. Um, in this fracturing world, you, know, you would see inflation start to go up as you have to rely on more domestic service sector and manufactured sector goods. Mm. But remember that you know, in Chinese, Chinese wages have risen sharply already. So it's not as though you know, we would already be needing to look to other parts of Asia or to Africa. Um, but again, one of the things that China's been ahead of the game on there through the Belt and Road Initiative yes. is that you know, they've actually um, you know, recognized that process well ahead of the West. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, again, you know, our guess is that, that the Asian growth profile will probably, even with China's aging population, the Asian growth profile will probably be superior to either the European or the American 
growth profile, given that half the world's population live mm. within a very narrow circle um, centred on Myanmar. Um, so uh, so the, the, the natural home of uh, global trade and global activity will actually probably be shifting eastward again rather than westward over the next 20 to 30 years. Mm. Now, in, in hindsight... There is always something you look back on and think the majority of investors missed or overlooked that risk. And, you know, I think a really good example is at the end of 2021 when there was a really strong view that inflation would be transitory. So right now in 2023, what is the thing you believe too many investors are overlooking? So I think it depends on your time horizon. Um, Alison, I, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, um, you know, in the in the short term, that uh, what people are overlooking is that producer prices and consumer prices are coming down very sharply around the world. Historically, if if I drew you a chart of a hundred years of PPI inflation in the US and CPI inflation in the US, you'd probably be saying that US CPI, headline CPI inflation, could head back towards zero. Um, so we could, we could be in a short-term outlook where headline inflation comes down very sharply. Um, going forward, however, you know, those, some of those structural stories which I think are now pretty well understood, mean that inflation will be mm. be higher. But I think the the thing that people are overlooking is, um, you know, that that uh, that inflation could headline inflation could be much lower, even if core inflation remains sticky because wages are high. The second thing is. Um, and this is something that I think that the central banks and the supranational authorities have realised that they have overlooked as well, is that insurance companies do have a lot of risk in them. They have a lot of embedded leverage. Um, and as we saw with the UK um, LDI crisis, uh, and there's some great work by the New York Fed that shows that actually insurance companies could be the main amplifiers of risk mm-hmm. in the in any financial crisis. Um, in in a way, actually, they were in the GFC. So you know, I think if there's something that people are overlooking, it's uh, at the moment we've had the crypto sell off. We've mm-hmm. had non buy now pay later. We've had the mortgage originators. We've had the small regional banks. I think it could be the uh, insurers that, that are next. Mm. And final question before we wrap things up. <laughs> <laughs> what are the opportunities that investors should be thinking about? So so I think, um, you know, that's actually a very nice lead uh, from my last point about, um, you know, if inflation, headline inflation comes down, then almost regardless of the level of um, deficits or debt, mm sovereign bond yields will come down as well. So actually, you know, our, our most positive, mm. um, you know, recommendation for investment uh, investors is to focus on those um, sovereign bond yields that you can pick up at the current time. Short term, the front end of the curve may go up. Those two-year, you know, c- rates may rise further, but that's just going to increase the risk of a weaker economic growth further out. So, you know, that seven to 10 year range for, for Aussie govies, US treasuries, you know, if you're brave going out to the 30 years, you know, those are the places that we'd be rather than corporate credit. Mm. Um, 
and bond-related equities, so things like food and beverage stocks, mm. you know, the, the, the really boring stuff um, tends to hold up pretty well um, in this kind of environment. Mm. Uh, so also, you know, pharmaceuticals, so staples as they're referred to. Those more defensive parts of the market. Yeah, absolutely. We would still stick with the defensive bond-sensitive plays because if inflation comes down, those are the bits that the, um, that, that the earnings are going to hold up best in. Um, and remember that, unfortunately, tech, even though it has this fantastic you know, AI-driven, new, exciting growth profile, which may be true for the next decade, mm. you know, if economic growth slows, your consumers of those products don't have as much money to buy them. They are cyclical, mm. despite the structural story. Yes, I think that's been forgotten in the last, um, <laughs> let's, at least the last quarter, hasn't it? That some of these businesses, yes, they are maturing um, and their growth profiles are becoming more cyclical and, you, uh, you know, what is the right multiple to pay for that? Um, yeah. P- perhaps it's not more than 30 times. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Ian, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you for joining me today and sharing all your insights. Thanks very much indeed, Alison. Thanks for the fantastic questions and um, you know, best wishes to, uh, to, to you and all the Antipodes clients. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when the next episode goes live in a few weeks. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.